So last week, I gave you a message about the faithful father who brought his demonized boy to the disciples and to Jesus Christ for healing. And, and in that account, in Mark's gospel, we see a lot of faithful, faithlessness and doubt in that. And so this morning, what I want to speak about kind of joins in on that. And the message is that we must guard against doubt in the Christian life. So our main text this morning is going to be from the first chapter of James, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, if you want to turn there um, now. And the title of this morning's message is Storm Warning on the Sea of Doubt. James is going to give us a warning, a message about doubting in our lives. So frequently when we look in the Gospels, we can see that those even closest to Jesus struggle with with doubt. And when we see this, we should not take that as an excuse or approval for us to go through our walk in our life now also with doubt. We usually forget that salvation and God's revelation takes place in human time, that certain events happened at a certain place in time. And there's a perspective that can be seen before certain events, and that can be changes and is seen differently after certain events. And the cross of Christ is the main event. The cross of Christ changed everything. So we must understand that when we read our Bibles, when we read the gospel accounts, how this changed. And we need to take care that we don't look at what occurred before our Lord went to the cross as the way we should lead our lives. Well, the apostles lived this way. They had these doubts. So everybody doubts. Well, that's neglecting the importance of the central act in human history, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. In the shadow of this looming cross, the disciples struggled with doubt and wavering faith. But on the resurrection side of the cross, doubting ceased, and the faith of the disciples became rock-solid, These men who were once fearful of storms at sea, accusative servant girls, and crooked officials were transformed into men that did not fear Roman execution or murderous priests and Pharisees. The cross of Christ changed everything for them. So speaking of doubt... And faith, I think the first thing we must do is look at and examine what do we mean by faith? What is faith, Christian faith, and the Christian life? Our first point, point number one, is faith is our active trust and belief displayed through 
obedience. It's often and rightly said that the Christian life is a life of faith. But we need to define faith in the Christian context. It can be summarized as active trust and belief displayed through obedience. The operative words here are active and obedient. The Christian life, Christian faith, is a life of action. It's not just mere cognitive belief in a proposition or doctrine or even a person, although it does include, you know, doctrinal belief and theological understanding is important. For example, that we must understand Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God who's come in the flesh. In faith, we should be understand that as, invol- as involving the whole person, mind, heart, and body. The prophet Habakkuk proclaims, the righteous shall live by his faith. So the connection between righteousness and faith suggests faith is the means by which we abide or we live continually in God's favor. And here, going back to this idea of revelation happening in time, the New Testament reveals something to us very important, that faith is not only a personal action, it's a divine gift bestowed by God. We see this in Ephesians 2.8, where Paul writes, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So the New Testament authors, primarily, they're viewing faith as belief in the Incarnation, Christ's death and resurrection, and such that a person's life is shaped by these beliefs. They're not just intellectual acknowledgments. This changes everything. This genuine faith really differs from conceptual faith. James in his epistle that we're going to be referring to this morning, he tells us that even the demons believe and shudder. But they do not have a saving belief, do they? They have an intellectual, they have a cognitive understanding that yes, Jesus is God the Son. But that's where it stops. He's the enemy. So when we speak about faith, it's helpful to understand that biblically we have three distinct concepts of faith. And the first is what can be called covenantal faith. Faith as covenantal loyalty. We find a relationship in the Bible between faithfulness and loyalty to God. When we are instructed to have faith, it's not merely a thought exercise. It's not merely an eager wish. Such a command is given with the expectation of fidelity, loyalty, and trust. And this is apparent in the book of Joshua, ch- chapter 24, verse 14, when the Israelites renew their covenant with Yahweh after taking possession of Canaan. And Joshua demands something of the Israelites. He says to them, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. And in Egypt. Serve the Lord. The next sort of faith that we find in the Bible is what might be called epistemological faith, which is, which is knowing faith. Faith as spiritual perception, if you will. 
We see this um, in the New Testament, particularly with Paul. This is opposite of the common label that people often affix to Christianity as, as needing blind faith. Our faith is a faith of sight and perception. It is not blind. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says Christians are to live or to walk by faith and not by sight. What, is, what does Paul mean by this? This refers to a capacity for spiritual perception that allows us to interpret the world, everything around us, everything we see, everything we do, everything we experience with a biblical worldview. We perceive it differently. You've seen this, haven't you, in your own life, where you're now, you're looking at things, once you become a Christian, you're looking at things completely different than what you once, how you once looked at them, and completely different from how others around you who are not believers, how they look at the world. It's like it's almost too different things. We can then see and perceive God's work in the world while the rest of the world rejects it or ignores it, doesn't see it or denies it completely. Then lastly, we have eschatological faith, faith in the living eschatological expression of Christian hope in God's restoration of all things that is to come. While faith in the present involves seeing as God sees, eschatological faith is necessary because sin has corrupted everything. It's corrupted our human understanding, has it not? And to see properly is a dimension of present faith, as as we just discussed. But God promises that all that is hidden will be revealed when Christ returns. This is our future hope. The righteous will be honored and rewarded. The reprobate and the wicked will be exposed and punished. Christian faith involves living in light and anticipation of that day, the day of the Lord, which is to come. So, with the idea in mind of what we saw last week with the healing of this boy, how do we understand the connection between faith and healing? And this is, this is important matter to understand before we get into the warnings on doubting. We see many of our brethren in the Christian faith that fail to make this distinction and that run into issues and run into real problems when it comes to the idea of healing connected to faith. Well, here's the way that we should understand it. When Jesus begins his public ministry in Mark 1.14, we're told that he says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So this call to faith that was issued to the first century Jews was a call to allegiance, a call to loyalty, to accept that the kingdom of God had come near in the person of this Jesus of Nazareth. We see in the synoptics that the language of faith relates to trust in God and to Jesus. But there's also a concern with relationship to divine judgment there that we, that we can't ignore. However, of greatest interest, especially what we're talking about right now, is are Jesus' healing miracles. How do these fit into the subject of faith? Especially since the synoptics refer to two statements by Jesus that, that could be taken um, in the wrong context. 
Matthew records in two instances, in chapter 8 and chapter 9, in healings, where Jesus says, let it be done for you according to your faith. And then Matthew, Mark, and Luke both record another instance where Jesus says, in regards to healing, your faith has healed you. An explanation, I think, is required to avoid a misinterpretation here and misapplication, which, which we see even to this day. There's, there's four important points as far as faith and healing in the Gospels. The, these healings focus on the proclamation of the Gospel, specifically how the Gospel claims victory over evil and the resulting damage from sin. They point towards true faith in God through Jesus. That's what they point at. They're not pointing at the joy and satisfaction of the person being healed. And that's where our attention is often drawn, right? That's, but that's not where we should be looking. And after these people that were healed, after their... Excuse me, I just got ahead of myself there. So secondly, while Jesus does commend the faith of the one seeking healing, deeper faith does not necessarily involve physical health, or safety. So a good example of this is John the Baptist. John the Baptist, his ministry and the the person of John the Baptist is highly commended by Jesus. But what happens to John the Baptist? He has his head cut off by, by, by Herod, right? And he remains dead. He has great faith, but he's not healed. Third, the faith of those seeking healing is not necessarily orthodox or complete. Remember which side of the cross that we are on at this point. Sometimes their understanding of Jesus is only rudimentary. They don't really know his true identity. Jesus commends their seeking him, though, in their darkest hour. They're commended for that. So they understand that he does have power and authority or potential power and authority, like we saw with the father of the demonized boy, if you can. But they don't see the big picture yet as to what God is doing or what will do he will do in his death and resurrection. So the Gospels are not measuring faith by its orthodoxy at this point, no. They're measuring faith by determination, courage, and persistence of those seeking Christ. This is evident when we think of the healing in Luke chapter 17 of the 10 lepers. After this healing, Jesus asks this question, were not 10 healed? Where are the other nine? Only one, because only one returned to praise and worship him. The others went about their business. They demonstrated a a transitory faith. In Christ, yet they were healed and they remained healed. And at the beginning, before their healing, they had called out to Jesus, calling him Lord or Master. So to get what they wanted, they were accepting this concept of Jesus as their Lord. Once they got what they wanted, then they moved on. And fourth, the Gospels are not to be considered guidebooks for healing. 
The healing miracles are signs. They're signs that point to something greater to come. They point to a greater salvation, a greater deliverance, which is the healing of salvation. And the Greek word for healed is also used for saved in the spiritual and eternal sense. Our salvation is a healing. So now we come to what James has to tell us. He has important instructions on the how to and how not to have a living, breathing faith. James wrote what is thought to be the earliest of the epistles. And his theme throughout this this letter is faith. But here, what James writes of is not saving or justifying faith. That's not his point. His point is a practical faith he wants to talk about. He looks at the lifestyle which is to be produced by faith in Jesus Christ. James knew, along with Paul, that true faith generates obedience. So he gently encourages the early Jewish church to live a life that was worthy of their profession of followers of Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the Savior. And he issues a storm warning, so to speak, for those who set sail on the sea of doubt, for Christians on the sunny side of the resurrection who've seen the light from the cross, the dangers when we doubt. He warns us against sailing in these troubled waters. He tells us of the dangers found there, and he instructs us how to faithfully navigate our Christian life to avoid the rocks and shoals of this fallen world. Now, as many of you know, James is the half-brother of our Lord. He's probably the eldest of Jesus' four younger brothers because he's listed in that order in, in Mark's gospel. So he's closest in age to, to Jesus of these, of these boys in the family. And I, and I think it could be argued that if anyone knew Jesus well, it was James. They were raised together, right, in the same family. They ate together their meals, you know, sat down at the table. They played together when they were little. And then later they worked together in their father's carpentry shop. James knew Jesus very well. But what do we read about James and the other brothers prior to Jesus' resurrection? They didn't believe him. They thought he was crazy. They ridiculed and mocked him. The crucifixion, though, what did it do to James? It changed everything for James, just like it changes everything for us. We should see that when we read this epistle. Think of who he once was, much like Paul not an enemy, so to speak, of the church, but a a mocker of the believers in Christ and a mocker of our Lord prior to the resurrection. Paul lists James as one of the witnesses to the resurrected Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15. And this appearance of Jesus that Paul lists is to James alone. He's by himself when Jesus appears to him. And this apparently is the turning point of his faith that changes everything. Could you just imagine that? It just boggles my mind. It blows me away to think about that. That he's been mocking his brother 
most of his life, once his brother revealed his ministry, and then he discovers it's, it's true. It's completely true. It can be argued also that James, excuse me, that Paul considers James to be an apostle because in Galatians he writes, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. That's not really an important point, whether technically we consider him an apostle or not. The idea is the high standard that Paul saw him in, this former mocker. The former persecutor sees the former mocker as a pillar of the church. And James is an important person in all of the early councils of the church that we read about in Acts. He becomes the leader, the the, the pastor, the senior pastor, if you will, of the church in Jerusalem after Peter departs from the scene, after he's rescued, uh, delivered out of prison. So now he is the pastor. And as this elder, as this pastor in the Jerusalem church, he writes a letter to the Jewish Christians, the believers are all pretty much Jews at this time, who've been scattered throughout the Hellenistic world by persecution, by exiles. And now there's a new wave of persecution that erupts in Jerusalem, coming from not the Romans, but from their fellow Jews. These are the ones persecuting them. And we see this in the murder of the first martyr, the deacon Stephen. This causes the Christians in Jerusalem to scatter, to run for their lives. So James writes this letter, which really is a sermon. It's a sermon he intends to be read during church services throughout the Greek-speaking world. It's not written to a certain person. It's not written to a specific church. It's written to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. That's all of the people of Israel. And James' goal in this is teaching spiritual maturity. So let's look and see what he has to say in verses 2 through 8 of chapter 1. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance or perseverance. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now regarding trials, James says in verse 2, count it all joy or consider it pure joy. Now this sounds crazy, doesn't it? Is James out of touch with reality that we should have pure joy over trials? Is he this pie-in-the-sky pastor, so focused on heavenly things that he is no earthly good? No, he's a pastor with a pastor's heart sending a pastoral sermon to those whom he loves, who've been driven from their homes, who've lost all of their possessions. They've been uprooted from the place where they grew up, from where their forefathers were born. They've been uprooted from that land and had to flee. James has witnessed the murder of a man important to and loved 
by his church, which is Stephen. This is not pie-in-the-sky stuff. This is down-and-dirty Christian living, so to speak. This is how to live the Christian life. These people needed to know. They needed comfort. They needed to hear their pastor. So he writes to them with a pastor's heart to encourage them. That's what a pastor wants to do is encourage his people that these trials did not happen because God has forsaken them. Oh, no, no, not at all. There is a purpose for trials is what James is arguing. And that as they live out God's purpose, he exhorts them to rejoice in that. And the second point I want us to see this morning is that, as James writes, Christian faith requires steadfastness. By steadfastness, we mean endurance. We mean perseverance. And James addresses our need for this. And the ability to meet trials, James tells us, is a mark of maturity in our faith. And groaning and complaining should not be heard from us. Trials are the testing of our faith with the objective to produce this steadfastness, this perseverance, this endurance. And our attitude in the face of trials should be joy, joy unmixed with grief. Not joy for the trial, but joy in the trial as we're living through the trials. He goes on to say, when you meet trials of various kinds, and in the Greek, what he's saying, when you fall into these troubles or encounter them. And I like the idea of falling into because it's like you're not necessarily bringing, you're not bringing this onto yourself. It's there and you're, you're happening into it. And the trials that he talks about, he's referring to external trials or tests of stamina. And what is the advantage of this? What are the advantages of these trials? Well, as we've seen, and we need to emphasize, they produce endurance. So this is not a new revelation that James is giving. And your pastors do not give you new revelations. They give you reminders of God's revelation. Exactly what James is doing. Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfasting, steadfastness. And testing, dokimion here, uh, that James uses, is only used in one other place in the New Testament, and that's in 1 Peter 1 7, which I think is very instructive as to what this testing means. So Peter writes um, in verses 3 through 6 that according to. to um, God the Father's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We're talking about Christian hope here. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So you see all this, the, 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 the promise of the Christian life is expressed at the beginning of what Peter's writing here. And in verse 7 he says, so that, 
the tested genuineness, there's that Greek word that's only found in James and in Peter's first letter, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So according to both James and Peter, we benefit from these trials. And Peter compares these trials to the testing of gold by fire. And these trials result in the mark of an approved standard of faith, like the tested gold would receive. You would know this gold is as pure as can be because it's stamped as approved by this testing process. That's what both of these men are saying. So truth faith, true faith produces or develops or brings about steadfastness, perseverance, or staying power in the face of difficulties. The steadfastness is necessary to produce maturity of faith and spiritual fulfillment. In verse 3 and verse 4 of, of James' first chapter, he goes on to say, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we see a repetition in his writing here. We see the repetition of this noun, endurance, perseverance, steadfastness. It's at the end of verse 3. It's the beginning of verse 4. This is what's known as Hebrew parallelism. It's one of the the remarkable things about Hebrew writing. The Hebrew literature is so grand because it has these wonderful ways of expressing these literary thoughts. Verse 4 here repeats the thought of verse 3, and in its repetition, it explains what verse 3 means. Verse 3, in essence, is saying, the testing of your faith completely works out the virtue of perseverance. And verse 4 explains that by saying, let perseverance work out its course completely. This demonstrates the importance of this to the message of this epistle. It alludes to the teaching of Jesus, who on different occasions taught his disciples and said, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Standing firm requires endurance, perseverance, steadfastness. And we don't achieve that quickly. It takes time to build endurance. We cannot hasten perseverance. It takes time. And when James says that we may be perfect, he's talking about mature, not that we are without any sin. That's a misunderstanding. That's not what the Greek is saying here. That we may be mature in our faith. Complete, where he says we may be perfect and complete, which is fully developed in every part. It comes from this Greek word. There's two parts to it. Whole plus part in the Greek. Literally, we are whole in every part of our being, of our spirit, of our thinking. And this is James' unifying principle in this epistle how to achieve spiritual maturity. Just as the fruit tree must be allowed its full growing season, it must go through the autumn rains. It must go through the summer sun. Perseverance has its own growing season. 
We must stand firm in the rains that come into our life. We must stand firm as we're enjoying the sun as it shines down upon us. And James is saying that these trials can be faced with joy. Well, how do we do that? James tells us it's with faith. With faith we can do that. James' idea of living a life of faith means a life just just saturated with faith. It's permeated with faith. It's infused with faith. Faith that is contained in every pore of our being. Faith lived out in body, mind, and soul, and heart. This is what the world views, and I borrow a phrase I love from, from a theologian, this, this results in a seriously dangerous religion to the world. It's unyielding and unconquerable to the ploys of the devil. And this is the type of faith that results in steadfastness. Steadfastness, when it's fully practiced, not just here and there, will develop this a thoroughly mature Christian who will lack for nothing and who will be all which God desires him or her to be. James' argument really is logical. But there is an admitted difficulty. We need to face difficulties when we find them in Scripture and struggle and wrestle with them, you know, and figure out how do, how do, we, how do we understand this. There is this difficulty. How can trials be welcomed with an attitude of joy? It's here that we see perhaps what might appear to be an inherent, inherent paradox. It's two things that seem opposed to each other. How can they both be? So how are we to understand that? The third point that we can draw out of the section of James' letter is this. God will help us in our trials. This is what James is saying in verse 5. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Here again, James links key words and phrases. The last phrase in verse 4 is lacking nothing. And he begins verse 5 with the phrase, if any of you lacks wisdom. Lacking nothing, if you lack wisdom. This clause is the first part of a factual statement statement in a conditional sentence. What James is really saying, and this is how we under, we understand this, because it seems like, okay, that's a, that in itself is a paradox. No, what he's really saying is, I know you won't admit it, but you need wisdom. Who among us wants to admit that we aren't as smart as we would like to be? That we make mistakes that we need help. James is tackling a delicate problem with the human ego here, but in the way he's writing it. He's not being blunt. He's being loving. He has a pastor's heart. He knows what his people need. He knows that his people know they need it, but maybe have difficulty acknowledging it. So we have to overcome our pride to ask for wisdom. Wisdom is not something we naturally possess. Believers must ask God for wisdom. James implies that God is the source of wisdom, right? Wisdom 
belongs to God. Wisdom is defined biblically as knowledge coupled with understanding. Both the Old Testament and New Testament tell us that this comes from God, and God shows no partiality. He gives to everyone, no matter who, because God wants to give. Giving like wisdom is a characteristic of God, and God gives freely, without interest, without the request that it be paid back. We know we can't pay back God anything. Who are we? God possesses all. There's nothing we can give him. There's nothing he wants from us other than our loyalty, our obedience, our steadfast love. And moreover, here's the wonderful thing about God. God can give without reproach or finding fault. If you've ever had to go to a family member for help for anything and needed them to give you something, we all have those family members that reproach us for the request that express doubt over our ability because of our our request. God never does this. God knows what we need. And yet, he desires that we realize what we need from him and that we ask him for that. And he is ready to give it to us. Our requests of God are never met with his displeasure. Never do we have to worry about God saying, wow, I didn't know you were that dumb. Or I didn't know that you would, that you would forget what I've already done for you. Or that I would have to remind you. God never does that. Here's the storm warning that James gives. But when he asks, the Christian, asking for wisdom, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. James uses an illustration of a stormy sea. This is what I'm referring to as the sea of doubt. So James, we knew where James grew up, right? He's Jesus' brother. He grew up in Nazareth. Nazareth is in the region of Galilee. What's in Galilee? It's the Sea of Galilee, um, sometimes called the Sea of Tiberias, sometimes called the, the Sea of um, Kenareth in the Old Testament, which means harp. If you look at it in a map, it looks like a harp. Um, so he's familiar with the sea and the conditions on this body of water. And the Sea of Galilee is subject to severe storms. And you can think in the Gospels, there's, there's two accounts were given of the disciples that are endangered by sudden fierce storms when they're sailing on the Sea of Galilee. Now, four of these disciples are fishermen, right? They've, met, they've plied their trade on this body of water. They've been around and on this body of water since probably before they could walk. There's two types of storms on Galilee, and the the fishermen know how to read the weather. When a storm comes up with the dark clouds and the lightning and the rain, they can see that coming. Fishermen can see that on the Sea of Galilee, and they had the boats in. They're not on the sea in those conditions. But there's another type of storm that hits Galilee, which hits suddenly and unexpectedly and is deadly, and that's a windstorm. 
the wind comes down off the Golan Heights and sweeps onto the Sea of Galilee and creates huge waves. It reminds me, if, you, if you've ever been out on Lake Mead, where a large lake and storms can come up, if you don't get a weather report ahead of time, you can get hit by a storm when you're in the middle of the lake because it's going to take you a while to get to a marina, to get to a harbor, and it could be dicey. You, you, winds kick up. Huge waves, boats get swamped. This is the same sort of thing that James is talking about. James is describing a windstorm on the Sea of Galilee when, where one loses all control of the boat, where the waves are both horizontal, driven by the wind, and causes a sailor caught there to be tossed up and down vertically. This is his illustration of what a doubter is like. Everything seems fine until the windstorm hits. The doubter is driven to port and then to starboard and back again, thrown up and down, going every which way, losing his bearing, unable to navigate his boat, being swamped by high winds, sinking in the sea of doubt. The picture of the sea painted by James is one of instability and restlessness. So James portrays the man who doubts. That man is like the heaving waves of the sea. He's unsettled, unstable. He lacks the wisdom that he desperately needs to give direction to his life. But because the man doubts, God withholds wisdom from him. God expects his people to come to him in faith, then he rewards them for seeking him. If a man doubts, however, he will not receive the Lord's blessing. Remember which side of the cross we are on. We have to learn a lesson from the cross that should wipe away this doubt. Verses 7 and 8, James says, For that man must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Yes, our faith is weak at times. And sometimes we are timid in our faith. We, we must confess this. And we struggle with periods of doubt. So then are we the people that James addresses? Are we tossed about as the waves of the sea? Do we forfeit God's blessing because we are weak in faith? Think about the first father of all believers, Abraham. His faith was not always unfailing and strong. He had moments of doubt and despair. Yet Abraham received the promise of God and God blessed him. What then is James saying? He's not referring to the person who wards off doubt, but rather to the one who is double-minded and unstable. Double-minded means literally twice-souled soul as in spirit. A double soul, one soul, and then another soul, or expressed as a mind, one mind, and then another mind. One mind of this man says, I'll try religion. It doesn't do any harm, it may do some good. The other mind says, I have no need of God because he wants me, because I want me, I want to be independent and self-sufficient. And a person who doubts, who's double-minded, does not expect to receive anything from God. He's denying it as he asks. 
James then observes that a doubter should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. And James calls this person that man. And the wording he uses, that man, exhibits disdain. That man doubts the truthfulness of God's power and promises. He asks God for wisdom, but doubts whether God will give it to him. One moment he prays, but the next moment he ignores God. He has one foot in the church and one foot in the culture of the world. Maybe he's playing a game with everybody, but you can't play a game with God. He can easily identify those of us who are double-minded. And when the father of the boy, demonized by the deaf and mute spirit, said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief, Jesus heard his prayer of faith. He healed the man's boy by casting out the demon. Note, however, and this is an important point, that the man struggled with his weak faith and asked God for help. And what did God give him? God gave him the help he asked for, the help that he needed. As God himself is unchangeable in all he says and does, so he expects his people to be the same. He detests instability, double-mindedness, and doubt. And near the end of James' epistle, James contrasts the double-minded doubter with the single-minded believer. That's what we should be. That's what we need to be, the single-minded believer. And James says, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. God desires that we pray to him and that we believe that he will answer. That's how we achieve spiritual maturity. That's how we face trials in an attitude of joy. God stands ready to help us. Let us never forget that. Join me in a closing prayer, please. Heavenly Father, we give thanks that you stand ready to give us what we need, Father. And we give thanks that you know what we need, even when we don't. Father, we give thanks for these men who've written these words that have been inspired by you that address the needs that we have, the needs that we are afraid to voice, that we're uncomfortable talking about, Father. It's a blessing to us, and I just pray that we we use these words and we put them put them into action that they're written on our heart and on our soul and in our minds father and we pray that we bless the rest of this service and the rest of this day that we dedicate it to you in Jesus name amen